Welcome to Feed, a food systems podcast presented by Table, a collaboration between the University of Oxford, Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences, and Vaxjöningen University. I'm Matthew Kessler, and today it's just me speaking with Kara Fischer, Associate Professor in Rural Development, and my colleague at the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences. There's not one side that is scientifically right or wrong, but this is a scientific issue where having a lot of dimensions that are not really scientific. It is so much about ethics and uh, social justice, what what you think you you should do with environment. It's, it's a lot about values. So you can't find out what's right or wrong by just looking at the facts. I think that's what's interested me. Clara Fisher has worked with smallholders in South Africa, Uganda, Zambia, and Tanzania. She's interested in how smallholders adopt and adapt to new technologies and practices, and how agricultural policy and advice is communicated to smallholders. In our last episode with data scientist Vincent Ricciardi, we looked at what are the different assumptions made about smallholders at the global scale and if the data supported those ideas. Here, we flip from the global to local perspective and zoom into the Southern African context, where Clara has been researching for over a decade now. In our conversation, we see how Clara reframes and questions some of the controversial debates surrounding smallholders. What's the role of genetically modified crops in smallholder production? Where do we draw boundaries of the farming and food systems? Can some of the success stories of the Asian Green Revolution translate well into the African context? Before diving into these topics, I first asked her what she had for breakfast. I had oatmeal porridge with jam. It was a drottning silt. <laughs> it's a mix of blueberries and raspberries and some uh, Swedish uh, knäckebröd. Thank you for joining us today, Clara. I'm really excited to talk with you because you hold nuanced views on two highly polarized subjects that intersect with our theme of scale today. So the first is around biotechnology and specifically genetically modified or GM crops. And the other, which connects with the first, is about what does the future look like for smallholder farmers? But first, how did you get into food and agricultural research? I think it was during my undergraduate studies in biology. I studied biological sciences in, in the UK. And compared to in Sweden, when if you study biology in Sweden at university level, it's much more only biology. In the UK, I had the chance to take some geography courses and anthropology courses. And in the end of the 90s, the GM crop issue was coming up. And I got very different perspectives in the ecology lectures and the genetics lectures, for example, about the possibilities and risks and ethical issues around GM crops. So then for my master's, I had moved back to Sweden and I did my master's in, in Lund in the south of Sweden. And so I wondered, are there actually any studies where smallholders grow GM crops? And so I started looking at that. So this was around 2001. I found out that there were hardly any studies done on that. It was mainly just discussed all the time in scientific papers and in the general debate, in the introduction and in the discussion parts of papers. Clara also observed that in these discussions, different disciplines or ways of seeing the world often landed on two different sides of the debate. Lab people like molecular biologists and also economists were much more positive. Whereas researchers looking at system level, like ecologists and geographers, they were more negative. So I, I thought that was really interesting. So my my entry into food and agriculture questions was through the GM crop issue, I would say. 
I wasn't interested specifically in food and agriculture before that. And what was it specifically about the GM crops that attracted you? Was it that there was a contentious debate and you're interested in kind of understanding the sides or was it something about GM specifically? I think from the beginning, it was the contentious debate and the fact that I got so different perspectives presented to me by different researchers. So I think my point of view from the beginning or my understanding of it was that there's not one side that is scientifically right or wrong, but this is a scientific issue where with having a lot of dimensions that are not really scientific, it is so much about ethics and uh, social justice, what what you think you, you should do with environment. It's, it's a lot about values. So you can't find out what's right or wrong by just looking at the facts. I think that's what's interested me. Probably also a bit of this, the fact some people were so angry about it made it a bit interesting. <laughs> yeah, it certainly is a is a field that gets a lot of strong opinions. And that transitions really well into thinking about how the values influence these different debates. We spoke with Ken Giller in an earlier episode. He made us really understand that there is not one single type of smallholder. When we talk about smallholder, it's this large heterogeneous group. And we often from the outside, paint them with a single brush. And we say, this is the future that needs to happen. Can you maybe lay out what are some of the different views about what is considered to be the best future for smallholder farmers? And also, what are the values or assumptions that are built into those narratives? That's a really difficult question. But just to to start where you started, what, what is a smallholder? I think we use the term smallholder because we want some term to talk about marginalized poor farmers or farmers who have, have less resources than, than wealthy farmers. And uh, it's easy to categorize them by scale, but many smallholders are smallholders because they are poor. And I, I still think it's a useful category. We need the word. We can't speak of things if we, if we don't have words, but it's important that we talk about what we mean. And a smallholder can be many different sizes and and also depending on where you are in, in the world you know the soil the weather the market possibilities the politics everything around it will be different to create different possibilities so so my experience is mainly with smallholders in sub-saharan africa and that's quite different from from smallholders in other parts of the world i think yeah so then let's zoom in on what are the different discourses around the future of smallholders in sub-saharan africa one strong discourse that I found in my in my PhD work where I looked at, at agriculture development in South Africa was this idea that smallholders need to become business minded. So there was this discourse focusing very much on that we need to change the individual. And that's not exclusive to South Africa. I would say that in the South African case that that discourse had a particular mix of the history with, with colonialism and apartheid and, and today very neoliberal policies and market-oriented policies which focuses on, on creating entrepreneurs. But this idea of creating entrepreneurs, I see that all over Africa. And of course, there's nothing bad with being an entrepreneur, but I think there is something bad with trying to fix poverty by thinking that you need to change poor people. And that irritates me, <laughs> that discourse actually. Because uh, I think it's moralizing and I think it talks about poverty in a way that makes it sound as if poor people are to blame for their poverty. So while there are relevant parts of that discourse that many smallholders need better access to markets, better infrastructure, support and so on, 
but when it's created together with this talk about that we need to create entrepreneurs and that this part of creating entrepreneurs is a lot about you need to change, not about how can we help you. That That's when it comes becomes problematic, I think. So I think it's really important to somehow disentangle the talk about the need for market access with the entrepreneur talk. It doesn't sound nice, but also I don't think it works because poor people are not poor because they are lazy. Uh, poor people are mainly poor because of structural, political and other types of problems. Another camp that I hear about is kind of on the opposite end of that, is that not that farmers and smallholders necessarily scale up, but that they should stay smallholders. Can you explain that point of view? Yeah, I think when you talk to smallholders in Africa, at least, exactly like then Ken Giller said, actually, that when you talk to, to smallholders about what do they want for their children and so on, they want them to get the job in town. They don't want them to inherit the farm. For most or many smallholders, I think that when they themselves picture a way out of poverty, farming is not that path. So that's important to have in mind, I think. And also to appreciate that just because you're poor, I don't think other people should have the right to decide what you should do, <laughs> if you see what I mean. So smallholder farming is important for many reasons. For example, it creates a much more complex landscape. It's much more biodiverse. It's, it's more diverse on crop level. It's probably better for the environment in many ways than large-scale farming and large-scale monocultures. But it, we need to find ways that it can be better, but also good for the people. I mean, we cannot save the environment by keeping people in poverty. I, I acknowledge the, the idea that, that smallholder farming is good. I, I think it is good for many uh, environmental reasons. Um, but we need to think about how to then support smallholders to get out of poverty, but without reducing the, the positive environmental benefits that are there now. To dive deeper into the efficacy of GM, I asked Clara to unpack her study, is BT maize effective in improving South African smallholder production? But first, what exactly is Bacillus thuringiensis, or BT? So BT maize is a maize that is genetically modified to have some uh, DNA from a soil bacterium that produces a substance which is toxic to certain insects, uh, for example, stem borers. So BT maize produces this toxin. So when the stem borers eat on the maize, they, they die. And Bt uh, is also used in organic farming. And it, it's one of the few uh, substances that is allowed in organic farming as a pesticide. So it's considered fairly harmless and natural, you can say. So the idea with Bt maize then is that farmers won't lose yield to stem borers. And farmers can also reduce their pesticide use and reduce labor time for scouting for stem borers and applying pesticide. It can raise yield for those who didn't have a good pesticide management in place beforehand. For those who had a good management of stem borers beforehand, it can reduce uh, labor time. Since the maize produces its own toxin, you don't need to apply pesticide. So Bt maize was introduced in South Africa uh, in the end of the 90s. And how did smallholders and large-scale farmers respond to the introduction of Bt? It was very positively received by, by the large-scale commercial farmers. And today, over 90%, I think, of all the GM crops grown in South Africa by large-scale farmers is GM. This is mainly Bt and, and Roundup Ready. So Roundup Ready is, is herbicide-tolerant maize. 
Uh, I think most of the maize grounds is the one with so-called stacked trades when they have both herbicide tolerance and Bt. Uh, so for the large-scale farmers, it it reduced labor costs, so it made their farm operations it, it improved their economy. That that's why it was beneficial for them. So the idea was that for smallholders it would raise yields because smallholders generally don't treat for stem borers very thoroughly. Why is that? Um, it's probably a combination of different things, but one thing is that it's not stem borers. You know, they they bore inside the stems and and they fly at night. And smallholders' knowledge of pest insects is often not very very good. So. When the maize is damaged, it it can look like it's nutrient deficient or suffering from drought. It's it's sort of wilting. It's not really really easy to detect why the maize is not feeling well. If you see what I mean, and also of course you need to apply pesticide, which costs money. And I can't say exactly how it is for for BT pesticide, but more generally, with both medicines for animals and and pesticides. And fertilizer, smallholders often dilute and or use less than needed because then you you know you can sp- <laughs> it will be less costly. So there are many reasons that that stem borers wouldn't be really well managed. Also, another thing is that many smallholders, especially the poorest ones, in many southern African countries where you plow the soil, if you don't have your own animals, you need to wait to borrow traction from someone else, and then you plant too late. Or if the rains are late, because most most farming is rain-fed, you, you have to wait for the rain, so you also plant later, and that affects the the level of stem borer damage also, because stem borers come certain times of the year. So there are many many factors to take into account. So we discussed that it was positively integrated, and you see it today in the market with large-scale farmers, and you also saw many government programs come in to encourage smallholders to adopt BT maize. Did this impact how smallholders adopted these technologies? Uh, overall, I must say in the South African case that what smallholders mainly need is not BT maize. They need other things. And, and in the end, it didn't improve or make their farming worse. The BT maize didn't affect smallholder farming <laughs> at all. <laughs> it didn't have the positive impact. And because smallholders in South Africa, so used to different government project, projects coming and promising things and then not showing up and being delayed and, and there are misunderstandings. So they sort of expect that, oh, this project will be here for a while and then it will probably disappear. So they didn't commit themselves so much. When the project ended, it wasn't very disruptive because smallholders hadn't changed their practices. Clara then discussed whether smallholders were using open pollinated varieties, hybrids, or GMs. Here's a quick summary of the key differences. With open-pollinated, seeds are pollinated with other plants of the same species by wind, birds, insects, and humans, and are selected for beneficial traits to be saved and replanted in the following season. Hybrids are cross-pollinated between two different but related varieties, also selected for desirable traits such as higher yields or better flavor, or to improve the plant's tolerance to different soil or climatic conditions. They're typically higher yielding, and it's more difficult to save true hybrid seeds. GM refers to having the DNA of seeds genetically modified in a lab to incorporate a desired gene, either of the same or a different plant or animal species. There are also regulations around saving and sharing hybrid and GM varieties. And as Clara explains, there's also cost differences too. In these areas in South Africa, they grow open pollinated varieties or their own land races, which are also open pollinated. 
and they buy seeds in the shop sometimes, but when they do, it's almost always open pollinated varieties because they are much, much uh, cheaper. And the BT was only bred into hybrid maize. And when it's genetically modified, it becomes even more expensive. So I think in 2008, when I did my fieldwork on this for the first time, the BT maize was 10 times more expensive than the open pollinated variety in the shop. So it, it's, a, it's a huge difference in price. And that was the major a hinder, I would say, to making smallholders buy that seed. So they used it when they got it for free from the government, but no one, one farmer uh, has bought it afterwards <laughs> out of the 300 farmers that I interviewed. So what was Clara's general assessment of GM in this example? So I think that because stem borers are a problem in this part uh, of Africa, BT makes sense <laughs> technologically, so to say, because it makes sense that it would be a good idea to have a maize that produces toxin against these insects that are a big problem. But because the BT wasn't bred into varieties suitable to the smallholders, it wasn't useful. And also the whole the patent regulation around GM crops make them even more difficult for smallholders to make use of in a way that is helpful for them. So my conclusion, I would say, is that you really need to look at the technology in, in a wider situation. You need to understand the whole sort of technology package. You can't only look at the BT. We need to take into account the effect that it was spread into a hybrid variety, the, the cost of seed, the type of agricultural advice they got, and regulation that you know limits the possibilities to share and save seed, which is really important for food security in this context. Another study that you published in 2016 that's called Why Technology is Not Scale Neutral. And this, of course, caught my attention for this series. You describe the Asian Green Revolution, where higher yielding varieties were introduced to farmers, which led to poverty reduction. And now Africa is again in the midst of a debate of whether or not to currently adopt these technologies. I'd like to ask a lot of questions about this because I think it's a really interesting paper. But maybe we could start with the basics of what do you mean by scale neutral and what made you decide to ask this specific research question? Yeah, I noticed uh, when I did my work on, on GM crops in Africa that there were people talking about uh, GM crops and seed as scale neutral. And they also said that this technology, i.e. Uh, GM technology, is so useful for smallholders because the technology is in the seed. So you need nothing else. You only need the seed. So it's scale neutral. Based on my own research, I felt that this argument doesn't hold. It's, it's not scale neutral. It's not equally useful for smallholders and large scale farmers. This is not what I see. So I started to dig into where does this term scale neutral come from? And I was looking at papers that use the term and see who they cited and traced it backwards. The first one that I found that used the term was a guy called Gerson Feather. And he was an agricultural economist and he was working at IFTRI. And this was in the 1980s. So he talked about, he wrote about the Asian Green Revolution. And he talked about crop technology as scale neutral. And he, he wrote several co-authored papers in the 1980s and 90s about this. But actually, Feather came to the conclusion that crop technology is not scale neutral, <laughs> which was really interesting, I think. So he talked about scale neutral technology as technology which is divisible. For example, you can take one seed and you still have the technology. You don't. You can use it on a very small plot, whereas indivisible technology would be 
a lot of irrigation infrastructure, for example, is indivisible and big combined harvesters and things. But he, he concluded that much of this divisible technology, such as seed, is dependent on indivisible technology. It performs better together with indivisible technology. For example, if you have inf irrigation infrastructure, you will get higher yield. So his conclusion was that this term wasn't so useful, but it was picked up by others and used to promote technologies like, like GM crops, for example. Clara then began comparing the literature on the Asian Green Revolution with the debate on a new green revolution for Africa today. There, there is, of course, much critique and controversy around the Asian Green Revolution also. There were problems with environmental uh, degradation, pesticide overuse, and also that it didn't re reach the poorest and so on. But based on the conclusion that overall it contributed broad poverty reduction anyway, I wanted to compare that with what is going on in Africa today. So I found several factors that I thought were key for that the, the differences that we see today. And so one, one, one key difference is that we talk about different crops. In the Asian Green Revolution, it was uh, wheat and rice, and they are self-pollinating. Uh, and also during that time, the varieties of wheat and rice introduced to farmers uh, during the 1960s Green Revolution, they were not hybrids. It's much more difficult to develop hybrids from self-pollinating varieties. And it's much easier to develop hybrids from open pollinated varieties like maize. So maize hybrids, they, would, they started being developed already in the 1930s. But with self-pollinating varieties like wheat and rice, farmers can take their own seed. The technology is in the seed when you reuse it. So in the essence, farmers only needed to adopt these new higher yielding varieties once, which is a big difference from from hybrid and genetically modified maize today, because you need to buy seed every year if you want to keep the benefits of the technology. So farmers get much more bound up into the seed market, so to say, in, and dependent on having to having money to buy seed. So that's one difference between the two. Rice and wheat are self-pollinating, which means they're more difficult to adapt into hybrid varieties, whereas African maize farmers would need to keep buying their seeds each year, which wasn't the case in the Asian Green Revolution. And then another big difference is that the Asian Green Revolution was based on not-for-profit initiatives. Uh, today, large part of the African Green Revolution is much more bound up in the private sector. Even though there are also non-profit initiatives, the seed market has been so concentrated. So seed research and development is to a very high extent privatized and seed is expensive. So that's a big difference. And then also the whole structural adjustment in Africa and the downscaling of support to farming over a long period and the global reduction of state funding to agricultural advisory services is a big difference. Agricultural extension was much more present during the Asian Green Revolution than it is today. So all those factors, I sort of list them and, and show that because of this, we cannot talk about scale-neutral technology. It doesn't help us understand the situation at all, because so much about how the technology works is not in the technology. It's in all these other factors. We were just talking about some of the biological and social factors at play in Asia, and that the African context is a bit different. Uh, as you were saying, some of the governmental and structural supports for some of these initiatives aren't in place are there other lessons that Africa can learn from the Asian Green Revolution? Since the world is so 
and the food system and the seed market is so globalized today. I think it's difficult to say what Africa should learn. It's about the whole <laughs> global system. One important thing to consider, I think, is that, for example, our agriculture in Europe was very dependent on, on state support and, and more or less quite closed boundaries, <laughs> whereas many African countries have, through the IMF and, and World Bank, been forced to open up their markets to global competition so much. And, and that has made it very difficult to, to develop and support smallholder farming. And I think that has shifted a bit in more recent years. In the 90s and early 2000s, the idea that globalization of the market was the only way was much stronger. So I think it's, it's, it's good that that debate has shifted a bit to acknowledge the need for state support also. Right. It's not just the geographic and ecological and cultural texts, but also the time dimension. Yeah. The considerations that were playing a global food system were very different several decades ago than they are today. Yeah, definitely. What would you recommend as the political and economic commitments that can ensure that these technologies are more equally distributed? We've already kind of established that they can't be scale neutral. Well, if, if we go back to the case of the BT maze, it's a privately owned technology. And the BT maze varieties that were introduced to smallholders, they were not developed for the smallholders. They were developed for large-scale commercial farmers. So I think the first thing is actually to take serious the challenge of uh, adapting the technology to smallholders' conditions. Uh, and for that to happen, I think more publicly funded research is needed. And uh, I think in the case of South Africa, the, the government, for some reason, keeps on even now this year, to promote GM crops as the pathway out of poverty for smallholders. And it doesn't make sense because it's still the GM crops on the market are the ones bred into varieties suitable for large-scale farming where you can have sufficient amounts of water at the right time and good soil and fertilizer and so on. In fact, there are varieties on the market that would help smallholders, but these varieties are maybe not so hot and, and you know, I think we need to get away from this idea that you need the most modern technology to create development. You don't. You often need quite simple. You don't need to be at the technology forefront to make a change. I think actually investing in government-funded agricultural advisory services and to have agronomy education where students learn about smallholder farming so that they don't graduate with this idea about the trajectory for all farming is to become a large-scale commercial farmer. I think that would make a big difference. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm also reflecting, I worked in Nepal with smallholders, and all of the agriculture education was geared very much towards scaling up. And then we went to a village where there wasn't a farm of that size in sight. And the advices that they were giving were based on kind of their own understandings of how to apply in the situation. And it wasn't often meeting what were the needs. So it's interesting, too, to think about diversifying the educational system. Yeah, I think actually that is really important. It seems from comments from other researchers and things that I read that, that this is the situation across the world. My personal experience is from South Africa and Uganda, mainly. And in those cases, the agricultural education is absolutely geared towards large-scale commercial farming. Another notion you trouble connected to scale is that higher yields don't necessarily mean increased food security. Can you talk a little bit more about the research you did in South Africa that examined 
whether or not, maybe I already spoiled it, whether increased yields would lead to reduced poverty and hunger. So it's the obvious conclusion, right, that if we don't have enough food and then we produce more food, so we will reduce hunger and poverty. But if you go into the details of it, it's really that simple. So, for example, in the case of South Africa, smallholders often have farming as a backup activity. Um, as as a food security or sub subsistence activity that that sort of subsidizes efforts to try to find a job in town or support migrating household members, for example. And then you don't you don't want to maximize production in farming if if it comes with a risk. When you have farming as a backup or as a security, you want to spread your risks in farming. And then diversification is makes much more sense. Of course, it's not bad for smallholders to produce more, but sometimes it comes at the cost of something else. Maybe you need to invest more time in farming then. Maybe you don't have that time or or that time is better used doing something else that brings more money. Maybe it increases risks and then you can't take the risk of trying to find a job, for example. And also when in focus groups with farmers, I ask them to, to describe the most important features of maize and to rank them. And yield didn't even come up. Not until I, I started ask for yield, and then it came at the bottom. So what was on the top of the list? It was resistance to drought, resistant to hard wind. It was storability. So may come with a variety of, of starch composition, and, and the ones with harder starches uh, are more tolerant to, to insects in storage. So harder starch varieties that were better to store better to for home processing those came at the top always and yield wasn't discussed so <laughs> that says something and also when i tried to uh, to get farmers to measure the yield from it so how how much did you harvest last year or how, it was not something that they were thinking about it was extremely well i i failed in getting any any form of accurate numbers but but it was interesting in itself because it shows that that yield is not the priority That's a really interesting insight to think about diversifying your risks in farming. Some might interpret that as, okay, I need to grow different types of crops and raise different livestock. Or you could also see it as I need another type of job to help feed my family. There's a larger discussion to be had in the future about parity in agriculture and what is a fair price for farmers, but we'll save that topic for another time. In the United States context, which I'm more familiar with, and I believe throughout Europe too, many small-scale farmers are largely dependent on off-farm income for their economic security. That's the same in Sweden, actually. With It's becoming more and more difficult to, to survive on farming unless you scale up a lot. And many, many farmers in Sweden diversify into tourism or having a bed and breakfast, or maybe the wife has another job. And so it's, it's very common that farming is not a full-time occupation. So I, I think actually we need more research that places farming in a wider livelihoods perspective. It's not so common. And the, the role of farming is very different in different countries. I would say in, in South Africa is quite particular in, in relation to other African countries also because of the, the historically very strong push for labor in the mines. So many rural areas have been like labor reserves. And that's the case in some other African countries. But in many African countries, the situation is very different. And farming is a much more important part of people's livelihoods. So the conclusion from this is also that it's so important to understand the context. 
you can't draw general conclusions about the role of farming for smallholders. It's it's different depending on history, politics, and so on. Uh, not only depending on the local environment, but depending on all these social and political and economic factors. Your research works intimately with smallholders and farming communities, which is a perspective not always present in the conversation about them. You're you're very much coming from the ground level, and one example where this might be evident is a discussion on whether farmers should be adopting these technologies. But from our previous conversation, you take issue with the term adoption. Why is that? I think mainly it, it's because adoption often comes with the assumption that technology is good, that, that the technology proposed is a good solution for the, the adopters. Much of the adoption literature is normative in that way that it has an intention of facilitating adoption without problematizing the technology, because technologies are so different. I mean, when we talked about the scale neutral earlier, and I talked about rice and and maize, for example, and hybrids and open pollinated varieties, that's an example of how different, different crop technology can be. So you need to unpack the technology. But another problem with much of the adoption literature is that it doesn't take the farming system into account at all. It sees adoption as a relation between the black box technology and the farmer as sort of uh, individual entities floating around in a vacuum, <laughs> if I should be very harsh. The adoption literature goes to the extent that it can talk about economic incentives that can facilitate adoption, market structures that can facilitate adoption, but it's very economics oriented. And it also talks in 99% of the cases, it talks about farmers as individuals. Well, some of the adoption literature talks about neighbors. Some of the recent adoption literature acknowledges that farmers can be influenced by neighbors when they make their decisions. But especially when you come to smallholder farming, farming is very much based on collective decisions. And you need to organize your farming within a broader society, not only within the family. You might need to borrow animals for, for plowing. You might need to, to help each other out in the harvesting and, and so on. So it's based on collective decisions and it's not, it's not up to the individual, but the adoption literature focuses very much on the individual. And it often speaks about the non-adopters as problematic. For example, the adoption literature frequently shows that those with larger farms adopt more frequently and those with smaller farms less. And men are more positive to technology and women are, are more reluctant adopters. It doesn't help us understand why some farmers don't adopt technology. And an important reason for this is that it doesn't unpack the technology and it doesn't look at the farming as a system. It looks at the farmer as an individual, almost deconnected from the farm even. So we've been talking about some of the challenges and critiques to how different people understand smallholders in the countries you've worked in Africa. What types of innovations have you found to be especially helpful to these farmers? I think uh, actually the, the social security system that is in place in South Africa is a very good model that has nothing, seemingly nothing to do with farming that, that can actually help farming a lot as well. Yeah, can, can you describe that system? Yeah, yeah. In, in South Africa, like in Sweden, they have a system in place where everyone in South Africa over 60 gets a pension. 
regardless of if you have been working or not, you get a basic pension. And all parents or caretakers uh, to children up to 18 get a child care grant. And then there are other grants like disability grant and foster care grant and so on. But the pension and the child care grant are the two big ones. And, and those make a big difference in poor people's households. And I have seen individual life stories change. Like I talked with a woman in 2019 was last time I was in the villages in South Africa where I have been doing field work since 2008. And I've been following 11 households more in depth. So I went back to, to those 11 households to see how their life had changed since I was there 2012. And we did in 2008, we did a, a participatory wealth ranking of all the households in the village. And she was classed as, as very poor the, out of four, four categories that, that people in the villages decided on, rich, uh, middle, poor, and very poor. So those who were rich, they were still poor in, on a World Bank definition. Uh, but she, so she was very poor. She was uh, living in her household as the only adult with a disabled grandson. And she had adult children that had moved to town to try to find jobs, but they didn't get any jobs and her husband was dead. She was really struggling. She didn't plant her field because she didn't have the time. She was planting in her garden next to the house. You know, she, she spent a lot of time fetching water, fetching firewood planting the little she had and so on. And then when I was there 2019, uh, she was so much better off and she was much happier. And she said, yes, because now I'm old. So now I have a pension and life is so much easier. And what had happened since 2012 was that the village got the electricity and she got the pension. So the electricity meant that she didn't have to fetch firewood for everything. She, she still used the fire for some things, but she had a small electric stove. And also with her pension, she didn't have to starve and she could always put food on the table. And because many households are intergenerational and they have some old people in the household as well, so they might have a pension or two. And that can be a basis for being able to invest in something. For example, investing in farming or investing in starting a small business and so on. So actually, I think we need to look more broadly and not only see at farming to see how we can fix farming. So I think the pensions is a very good idea to support farming. As a system sinker, Clara doesn't draw the boundary of the farm system at the border of the farm. She encourages other research to think this way as she argues for the importance of interdisciplinary research and thinking. With this example of the pensions, I think that can be a sort of a general recommendation that just because a problem is located in one place, it doesn't need, mean that the solution is located in the same place or in the same discipline. Or You cannot connect problems and solutions in that way in general, not just regarding farming. But if we look at environmental degradation, for example, because environmental degradation happens in one place, it doesn't mean that it's the people who live there that have caused it. So we need to sort of disconnect problems from solutions and think critically about them. And for that, we need interdisciplinary collaboration. And we need to sort of acknowledge the boundaries of our own knowledge. So we end with these kind of forward-looking questions. And one of them is, what visions of the future of smallholders in sub-Saharan Africa inspire you? And what visions alarm you? When I see initiatives uh, of, for example, 
supporting smallholders with appropriate seed, like new open pollinated varieties. That inspires me. Often more low-tech and much less high-tech interventions that look for small changes. Because what worries me is that there are so many products with so grand hopes to sort of eliminate poverty or transform smallholder farming completely and and that they just repeatedly fail because these grand hopes, they don't match with what's possible to do. And, and often they imply investment in, for example, inappropriate technologies. What inspires me is researchers who take time to spend a lot of time in the field and to really try to engage with smallholders' perspectives and to give voice to smallholders that actually reaches out to policymakers. And because the academic environment is so competitive and we're very much pushed to publish as much as possible, you're not stimulated to spend long periods in the field or to spend a lot of time communicating your research to the general public rather than writing academic papers, for example. So that discourages me. I think it's really a clash between what is needed and what we are sort of forced to do to keep our job. (laughs) Be nice to be able to reimagine the entire incentive structure behind, not just behind academia, behind uh, engagement with different technologies and small letters. But that's a a bigger project that uh, I think think maybe this podcast will do a small (laughs) step in that direction. Yeah, but uh, this is a really good initiative. I mean, you 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 contribute to to popularizing important subjects. <laughs> and and the last question that I'll ask is, what evidence and knowledge base do you draw from in your own research and work? So the the evidence I draw from is fieldwork with smallholders in Africa and participatory engagements, and also some uh, fieldwork in Sweden, actually, uh, as sort of a, a sidetrack. But that helps me put things in perspective, I feel. And theoretically, I draw on science and technology studies. I think that is important because it places technology in a wider context. And what is missing a little bit in science and technology studies is nature, I feel. So I also draw on on like farming systems research and, and ecological research on agriculture. And so I feel that although I have a background long ago in biology, I feel like I'm a pure social scientist now, but I like to have uh, conversations with biologists to understand the biological dimensions of the food system. I feel that it's important for me to have that dimension also. Well, thank you very much for speaking with us today, Clara. Thank you. It It was really nice. So we'll keep in touch. And that wraps another episode of the Feed Podcast. Thank you all for listening. We're still a new show, and you could help us grow by telling your friends and colleagues about it and rating and reviewing us on Apple iTunes or wherever it is you listen to podcasts. You can find more information about Clara Fisher and links to some of her work on our website, tabledebates.org. And there you could also subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Fodder, where you'll receive a carefully curated list of the latest research and opportunities on food system sustainability topics. We also have new explainers out on food sovereignty and agroecology that have been reviewed by people who sit on opposite sides of debates around what those terms mean and how they should be used. A big thanks to table intern Rachel Carlisle, who's been helping out with the podcast for the past few months and also co-authored both of the explainers. Music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. 
We'll be back in your feed in a few weeks when we speak with Sophia Murphy, Executive Director at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. You can see a lot of power imbalances and injustice in the local as well as in the global. So, you know, speaking as a woman, my life were all contained in my village. The chances of me benefiting from an emancipation movement is very much less than if I'm able to meet with other people. I just think human society, you know, forever has flourished also through exchange. Mm -hmm.